The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. So, in our first two sessions, we considered men and our moment. In our second session, men and the church and our relationship there to Christ and His position and lordship and what some of the implications are for us. In this session now, I want to talk about men and our idols as it relates to the uh, lordship of Christ that we've been discussing and uh, look, begin to look at some of the hindrances, some of the reasons why uh, the church is in the position that it is in in our time. And now, in order to do that, I want to turn to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 3, and we're going to read Jeremiah 3, verses 1 through 23, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1 through They say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return to her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the high places and see where you have not been lain with. In the ways have you sat for them as an Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with your whoredoms and with your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain, and you had a whore's forehead, you refused to be ashamed. Will you not from this time cry to me, My Father, you are the guide of my youth. Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you could. The Lord also said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there has played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn you to me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but feignedly, says the Lord. And the Lord said to me, the backsliding Israel 
has justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return you, backsliding Israel, says the Lord, and I will not cause my anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, says the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your ways to the strangers under every green tree and have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, says the Lord God. For I am married to you, and I will take you, one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And it shall come to pass when you be multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, they shall say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it. Neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done any more. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. In those days the house of Judah and house shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance to your fathers." But I said, how shall I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a goodly heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and shall not turn away from me. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. A voice was heard upon the high places weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way, and they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return you, backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. In the early centuries of the church, one of the key functions of the Christian apologist was not only to defend the faith from hostile attacks from without, but to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints in Jude 3. In fact, some of the most important and best works of Christian apologetics have been directed not against skepticism and atheism, but against heresy and idolatry in the professing church. If you look at the work, for example, of Justin and of Irenaeus of Leon, of Tertullian and of Augustine, many of their great works were addressed to Christians, professing Christians. And so when we ask ourselves, what are the idols of our time to which men are vulnerable, it's easy for our minds to turn towards the overt forms of idolatry and paganism and humanistic worship and the worship of images and occultism and materialism and the sexualization of our culture and pornography and so on. These are easy to spot. We battle against various forms of these challenges as people, as Christians. 
But the biblical condemnations of idolatry in the prophets is most significantly focused upon those not out there perpetrating these evils that we identify as idolatry very easily, but against the covenant people, which we see here in Jeremiah 3, Israel and Judah. In fact, idolatry is something that we expect in the world. In fact, Scripture tells us that oftentimes God allows idolatry in the world to be propagated as a form of judicial blindness, where God hands certain people over to a depraved mind, and so they are caught up in the grip of idolatry. Covenant-violating nations in Deuteronomy 4 and Isaiah 6 are found to be given blindness. They are given the worship of idols as a judgment against them. Significant when we think about our own time, that where we are in our own culture today, because of our abandonment of the gift of God and the grace of God in the gospel, we are suffering under the judgment, the just judgment of God in terms of idolatry. But what is most dangerous and where idolatry is most dangerous is amongst God's people. Last night, I mentioned what I called a truism that as goes the church, so goes the world. So that if the church is found in idolatry, what hope is there for those outside of Christ? What hope is there for the nations? If Christian people, this is why God addresses so often the covenant people about idolatry. Now, he does speak to the pagan nations, for example, Amos 1 and 2. Jonah is sent to Nineveh. But the focus of God's condemnations of idolatry is amongst the covenant people. If we are salt and light, as we've been saying, if we are the bride of Christ, then God's Word focuses upon His exacting jealousy for His bride, since she is, Paul says, pillar and support of the truth. And if the church is pillar and support of the truth in the world, if we cease to be so, then the manifold wisdom of God is not going to be made known to all principality and power, is it? So the focus of God's word with respect to idolatry is with the covenant people. We are tempted to blame the humanists and blame the pagans and blame the pagan state, the culture and the Muslims and everything else for the state of everything. But actually, if you look at Canada, we don't have anybody to blame but ourselves. The church has nobody to blame but ourselves. God calls us everywhere in Scripture to take a long, hard look at ourselves. Now, this is biblical therapy. In this remarkable passage, Jeremiah points to the faithlessness through idolatry of Israel and Judah. And he likens the adultery of the, the idolatry of the covenant people to an adulterous wife who plays the whore. It's actually a very shocking passage to read. It's graphic. Shocking. And we learn that God's people took their idolatry, what the Bible calls their adulteries, lightly, and as a result, verse 9, they polluted, they made unclean the land. And you see this throughout the Bible. God warned the Israelites that if they 
entered into the sins of the Canaanites, the land would vomit them out just as it had vomited out the peoples before them. That we actually make the land itself comes under judgment and a curse. It's made unclean by idolatry. Now, it would behove us to take these things seriously. We learn that God's people took all of this idolatry in the church very lightly, and as a result, they polluted the land. They believed a lie. What was the lie they believed? They believed that God is not jealous. They believed that God is not a jealous God, a consuming fire. They thought that God could be domesticated and made amenable to their faithlessness. That they could domesticate the Almighty God. The effect of idolatry amongst God's people was the decay of their faith and the decay of their social order and nation. And this reality is completely unchanged. In 1643, a famous document called the Solemn League and Covenant was agreed by the uh, English Parliament. And such uh, covenants and agreements have often been made by Western Christian nations about in terms of their relationship to God. We make oaths. I'll be speaking in the last session about the oath of Queen Elizabeth II. Now, do we think that God forgets oaths? We, we made a, if we were married today, you made an oath when you got married. It's a serious matter. Are we able just to forget our oaths as though they are unimportant? Do we think that God forgets the oaths of his people? In 1656, one of my heroes in the history of the Christian church, a great man, Oliver Cromwell, gets a bad rap in modern textbooks, but that's because he was a Christian Puritan. But he was a great man. And he read to the parliament, as he often did, he would often preach sermons to parliament regularly from the Old Testament. And they listened and loved it. Can you imagine that today? This is what Cromwell said to the Parliament in a speech in 1656. Listen closely on the 17th of September. I will hear what the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace unto His people and to His saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely His salvation is nigh to them that fear Him. Oh, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring up from the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield its increase. Righteousness shall go before Him, and shall set us up in the way of His steps. That's Psalm 85. That was his text. And then he said this, Truly I wish that this psalm, as it is written in the book, might be written in our hearts, that we may say as David, Thou hast done this, Thou hast done that, Thou hast pardoned our sins, Thou hast taken away our iniquities. Where can we go to a better God? For He hath done it. It is to Him any nation may come in their extremity for the taking away of His wrath. How did He do it? by pardoning their sins 
and taking away their iniquities. If we can but cry unto Him, don't forget this is the Lord Protector of all England. He will turn and take away our sins. Let us then listen to Him and consult and meet in Parliament and ask Him counsel and hear what He saith, for He will speak peace to His people. If you be the people of God and be for the people of God, He will speak peace and we will not turn again to folly. Till God hath brought us this Spirit, He will not bear with us. Aye, but He bears with them in France. They are so-and-so. Have they the gospel as we have? They have seen the sun but a little. We have great lights. If God give you a spirit of reformation, you will preserve this nation from turning again to these fooleries. And what will the end be? Comfort and blessing. Then mercy and truth shall meet together. Here is a great deal of truth. Here is a great deal of truth among professors, but very little mercy. They are ready to cut the throats of one another. But when we are brought into the right way, we shall be merciful as well as orthodox. And, who, and we know who it is that saith that if a man could speak with the tongue of men and angels and yet want that, he is but sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. Therefore, I beseech you in the name of God, set your hearts to this, and if you give your hearts to it, then you will sing Luther's psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. If Pope and Spaniard and devil and all set themselves against us, though they should compass us about like bees, as it is in the 180th Psalm, yet in the name of the Lord we should destroy them. And as it is in this Psalm of Luther's, we will not fear though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the middle of the sea, though the, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, Though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, there is a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. I have done. All I have to say is this, to pray to God that He may bless you with His presence. That He who hath your hearts and mine would show His presence in the midst of us. Parliament. Mid-17th century, England, the mother of all parliaments, the mother of the free, from which we get parliamentary democracy. This is what it was built on. Men who were prepared to say, we stand with God, and if we don't, we come under His judgment. Real men in real history said these things so that we could be free men today. Even in the midst, though, of faithlessness, the prophet Jeremiah says there's hope. God calls His people to repent, to turn to Him by recognizing their idolatry. He says you can still find mercy and grace and restoration, verses 12 through 14. So the faithful God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will give such a covenant people, we're told, shepherds and pastors after His own heart who will feed them and lead them, not into idolatry and blasphemy, but knowledge and understanding. 
And the Lord's presence will be manifest, he says, Jeremiah says, in their midst. And they'll go out and the nations will be gathered to it. This will be their heritage. So he says, return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. This is personal, applies to us personally. It's familial and it applies to us as families. It's national, right here in Jeremiah. It applies to us as a nation. Now, part of the challenge is that many of us have neglected the centrality of one of God's own names. In Scripture, names are much more than just a way of differentiating one person from another, as it's kind of become in our own time. Names were definitions. So when Adam named the animals, he was classifying and defining them. Names in the Old Testament, in Scripture, are often changed in terms of the character of the person. So Jacob becomes Israel, and Abram becomes Abraham, the father of many nations. As their character and situation has changed, God often modifies their names. Simon is called Peter. God's names then... These self-descriptions of God are very important. In Exodus 20, verse 5, we read a prohibition against all idolatry, and one of God's names is revealed, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It's even clearer in Exodus 34, verse 14, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. This is restated in Deuteronomy 4. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And where's that quoted? Hebrews chapter 12, 29. This is not one of the names of God that we tend to focus on, but it's a pretty important one. The word jealous is related to the term zealous. Zealous, jealous. And it denotes... Primarily, exclusivity, which is another word our age abhors. Exclusivity. We cannot domesticate this name and turn it into some kind of cold abstraction. We can't depersonalize it and write it off as an aspect of, well, you know, the Jews were stumbling around for an understanding of who God was in the desert, and therefore they were struck. But now, you know, this has been superseded by this contentless principle of love. God is love. He doesn't have any other attributes. Love and jealousy, though, are inseparably related. God is love. And it's because He is love that He is a jealous God. And God's Word says, I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3.6. So if you're looking to revise God and update Him in terms of modern culture, you're not in luck. Because He says, I do not change. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shadow of turning with thee, so do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, the writer says. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by novelties. Take us away from the Word of God. Jealousy, you see, like God, is personal. 
Jealousy is not something that is impersonal. Electricity is not personal. In other words, a murderer and a saint alike can touch an electric fence and both will get an electric shock. Because electricity is not discriminating. It doesn't say, oh, hang on a sec, that person's a really good believer, I'm not going to you know, electrocute them. It's impersonal. But God is not an impersonal force. He's not a benign benevolence. His jealousy is intensely personal because it's an aspect of real love. Let me illustrate that for to you. If I were to go out on the town one night at 7 p.m. and come back Sunday morning at 7 a.m. and come into my home and start to tell my wife in the kitchen about all my adulteries during, that, during the night, And she says to me, well, never mind, sit down and eat your breakfast before it gets cold. The only thing cold in that house is the marriage. There's something wrong with that relationship because love is exclusive. Jealousy, the jealousy of God is exclusive. It has to be by its very nature. And so we are jealous for our wives' affection. We're jealous for our children that they will succeed and be godly and grow up and do well. We're jealous for God's church. We should be. And we're jealous for the glory of God, or we ought to be. Jealousy, thus, can be a virtue. We don't like attaching it to God very much because we think, well, jealousy has these negative connotations. But jealousy can be a virtue because it's intolerant of unfaithfulness. The opposite of jealousy is a careless satisfaction. Whatever. A laissez-faire attitude. God's love for us, you see, is a gift love. It's for our good and our blessing. God doesn't call Israel and Judah back to himself because he's insecure. Because he's feeling needy. This is not the meaning of God's jealousy. It's not a need love because his being is not deficient. It's not in need of love. God is love, so he's not short of it. Water can't get wet. God is love. It's not a need-based love. But a God of accommodation to idolatry is not the God whose name is jealous. His love is like a husband for the bride of his youth. A deep longing for their good, their character and perfection, their blessing, a passion for their exclusive allegiance and faithfulness. And the New Testament repeatedly uses the same language as Jeremiah. St. James tells us, this is what he says in James 4, 4 through 5, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Wherefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in you? So James' concern here is that the world's way of thinking would infiltrate God's people, His church. 
and redefine how they think about the world and family and culture and life and sexuality and all things else. The same is true of Paul's jealousy for the church in 2 Corinthians 11. I'll just turn to that one other passage. I'm not going to take you all over the map, but this is an important one. Just turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read verse 1 through 4. So you can see how Paul uses the same illustration as Jeremiah. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 4. Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you or engaged you or betrothed you to one husband that, you may present, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with it or bear with him. What is Paul saying? Well, he's saying that as an apostle of Christ, he's betrothed, he's engaged the church to Jesus Christ. He's taking that image of marriage And this is an exclusive relationship. And what threatens it? Idolatry. Being led away, he says, by false gods to another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel, a distorted gospel. And this was being done in the church at Corinth. There was this idolatry in their midst. And what did they do? Paul says, put up with it readily enough. They tolerated it. They tolerated distortions of the gospel. Another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. We see here then the clear link between the Old and New Testament, between jealousy and idolatry and the illustration of marriage, which is the clearest example of its nature as one of God's names. The prophets and the apostles make clear that idolatry in the church leads to jealous, wrath, and significant consequences because it's an unshakable aspect of real, genuine love. That when we are faithless in our relationship to God, in our personal lives, our familial lives, our church lives, our national life, there are consequences, real consequences. We cannot liberalize and civilize the God of Scripture in an attempt to domesticate Him to idolatry, whatever it may be. We're all aware of our struggle in our own lives with various things that come before God. C.S. Lewis, the great 20th century apologist, puts the implications well in his letters to Malcolm chiefly on prayer. He says this, all the liberalizing and civilizing analogies only lead us astray. Turn God's wrath into mere enlightened disapproval, and you also turn his love into mere humanitarianism. The consuming fire and the perfect beauty both vanish. Can you imagine responding to flagrant adultery with an enlightened disapproval and a sort of magnanimous humanitarianism? Whatever that is, it isn't love. God's love is exclusive and His love for His covenant people demands 
the rejection of idolatry. So what is the nature of idolatry? Well, the essence of original sin, of course, is idolatry. I recently read in a church's doctrinal statement that suggested original sin or a sin nature of man was that, quote, he occasionally drops the ball and may need help. It's an evangelical church. Well, the plan of the tempter, contra this website, was actually that every person would be their own God. You will be as gods. Determining what constitutes for themselves good and evil. Right and wrong, truth from falsehood. Knowledge is ethical and includes the idea of an autonomous definition of truth. Because we either think and live in submission to God or we don't. If we reject God and His Word, we think and live autonomously as anti-law, anti-God. And therefore, we're going to start to define everything in terms of ourselves. And everything becomes social construction, marriage, gender, the human person, life. It all gets defined by the state. It says, well, we're going to set aside what God says. We're not interested in that. We are the source of truth and definition. We can redefine everything. Idolatry has many facets, but its most central is the worship of the self. Because man's favorite idol is himself and his own will. And when he makes idols and carves them, as in certain forms of pagan idolatry, he's just carving an aspect of his own self and self-will. He's worshiping nature. And he sees the pinnacle of nature as himself. And he worships his own will. And the moral fruit of this is idolatry. All pagan idolatry really involves bribery. In the sense that there is a, in some measure, the world out there, even if there's a God in it or uh, beyond it somewhere, is somehow chaotic. It's not under the predestinating sovereign power of the triune God of Scripture. And somehow the forces out there can be placated and bribed in some manner to conform to my will if I do certain things, if I perform certain rituals, if I say certain incantations, if I feng shui my apartment, if I do yoga, if I do this, that, and the other. Somehow the forces, the powers, whatever there is out there, will be conformed to my will. That's the essence of the idea of magic. In biblical faith and through Christ, God is the absolute Lord and sovereign over all things. He governs all things in His grace and goodness and law. And as a result, we have rest in God. We have the Sabbath rest of God in Christ because we have an absolute confidence in His unchanging, eternal faithfulness who's revealed Himself in Jesus Christ and in His Word. So we're not trying to bribe the universe. We're not trying to manipulate our way through life. We know that God's blessing comes with obedience, and His curses come with disobedience, and God's law governs all things. And you can break God's law the way you break the law of gravity, not very successfully. In the end, it breaks you. As our culture has denied the God of Scripture, it's turned increasingly to overt paganism, to Eastern thought, to occultism, and so on, and it finds no true rest because there is no salvation and providential God in whom they can repose. 
and therefore there is no Sabbath for such people. When the covenant people begin to take on these idolatrous ideas, though, and become faithless, the church is steadily destroyed. And that's why God declares to His people, you shall have no other gods before me. This is why the liberal church today is empty. And you know those people at the beginning of the 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, when the Methodist church and the Presbyterian church came together in Canada to become the United Church of Canada, most of those people were evangelicals. Biggest denomination in Canada. They were well-meaning. But then they decided to say, hang on a minute, this word from God doesn't go over too well with modern scientific people. We need to demythologize this stuff. All these miracles, people don't buy this anymore. So let's revise things a little bit. And the hermeneutic changed, and the idea was that we could be the source of definition and truth somehow, and we will pick and choose and select which bits of Scripture are really relevant to our culture. And where is that church today? Nowhere. You shall have no other gods before me. There is covenant faithfulness and there is idolatry and there's no way in between. The promise of God in Scripture is that in the age of the Messiah, the age of the church, Zechariah 13, 2, He will cut off the names of the idols throughout the land. And that's what Christianity did wherever it went. Faithful Christianity, wherever it has gone, destroys paganism and idolatry. The two key forms of idolatry which were found amongst God's people here in Jeremiah were syncretism and false worship. Syncretism and false worship, and they usually come together. Let's just look at that for a moment. This was the sin that Jeremiah highlights in Jeremiah 3, the spiritual orgies on the mountain in verse 23. What this meant is that the pagans all around them worshipped various deities, Moloch, Molech, Baal, Asherah, all these different gods and goddesses, expressions of nature or representations of the king. And the children of Israel left worship of the true God, and they said, well, we can mix. We can mix and match. We've got our God, but they've got other ideas, and we can do a bit of both. We can syncretism. We can join these things together. God will be fine with that. And this is a form of testing God. The idea that covenants can be made with false gods, false religions, idolatry. This is an inclusivistic, pluralistic God. Now, these are the terms that are used today in the churches. We need to be more inclusive. How would your wife feel if you said that about your marriage? Honey, we need to be a bit more inclusive, a bit less exclusive. Why don't we sort of have an open marriage. People do that today. How's that going to go over? Not too well, I suspect. Because the nature of that covenant is exclusive. And this is what God declares through Isaiah. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Syncretistic worship, 
covenants, marriages were forbidden. And that requirement is repeated by Paul in 2 Corinthians 6. You're not to be unequally yoked in unequal covenants, unequal oaths, unequal relationships. Our Lord is no less exacting. He says we cannot serve two masters. Jesus says, he who is not for me is against me. You cannot sit on the fence as a Christian man on any issue in Scripture. You walk down the middle of the road, you're going to get knocked over. Jesus said this, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Let's not pretend, guys, it can be any other way. Love for Christ is manifest through obedience to his commands. If we are unwilling to do that, we cannot speak of our love for Christ. Simple. We turn the faith into some sort of rocket science. Oh, yeah, there's some gray in here. Oh, we love to make the gray, don't we? But nine times out of ten, there's not really... Yeah, there's prudential questions. Of course there are, where we need the guidance of pastors and teachers to help us understand the situation that we're in. But for the most part, the issues are clear. But we play around and we think, well, we can syncretize a little bit here. God won't mind. If I had a dollar for the number of times Christian young people came to me and said, well, the, the, we felt the Holy Spirit saying it was okay for us to sleep with each other because we love each other. Thus, in the modern church, we have people and movements, whole movements within evangelicalism who claim they want a God of love. Love wins. Really. Not the God that I know. This is a foreign God to me. That's an idol. The God of love, which the contemporary church of those trying to liberalize the church and sanitize and civilize and domesticate the divine are always crying out is God is love. But this love is an abstraction and their God is an idol, an idea, an imaginary being. A universalistic, inclusivistic, pluralistic, antinomian God who doesn't give law. He's without grace, therefore, and without justice and so without mercy. He's an abstraction, ab away. There's no concrete, there's no manifestation of his character. He's just an idea that people prefer to the God of the Bible. God is evolving and changing with the spirit of the age. Isn't it amazing how the spirit of the age appoints the creed of the time? How God suddenly is found accommodating himself. This is God whose being and ways are not unchanging. He has to conform himself to the culture. He doesn't speak an infallible word. That word is going to be spoken by man for the moment. This is not a, a true God. It's a useless idol. It's, the God, it's a God where man is God, cloaks in theological and missiological verbiage to sound Christian, to deceive especially young people who do not have the, often have the grounding and the background in, sufficiently in God's Word to spot truth and error in these situations. The great idol of the covenant people in our day is, through the denial of the second commandment, our rejection of the God whose name is jealous. And we've created a God of our imagination in the West, where He is retained at all. 
The Western church has hitched up its skirt to play the whore against God. And our decline as a social order, our church closures, our ruin, our testament to our adultery. This God is a God who is there to service me and my interests. This is what Paul was warning the church about in Corinth, another Jesus, a different spirit, another gospel. He's there to improve my self-esteem, give me what I want. God, I can bribe by various techniques. This God is not exacting. He gives no law. He speaks no unchanging word. He's inclusive of sin. This Jesus is a hippie. He's an eco-warrior. He's a pacifist or he's a Marxist identifying with the oppressed masses in throwing off the bourgeois. But he's never the sinless lamb of God, bearing away the sin and guilt of the world, taking God's wrath upon himself. The spirit of the age, not the Holy Spirit, is leading people. The spirit leads us into all truth, of course. That's the true gospel. But this God is not jealous for my loyalty or faithlessness, not jealous for his law. This God is an idol, and God is destroying that idolatry before our eyes. In our culture today, 71% of people cohabit before marriage. 71%. It's common, it's everywhere around us. The married couple with children in Canada, one recent survey suggested, is now the minority family in Canada. Marriage has been redefined. Genders redefined. Roles redefined. When a culture starts sending its women to war on the front lines, you know you've got a serious problem. Education has been redefined. Law has been redefined. Justice has been redefined. And throughout this theological and social revolution, much of the church has been in an open relationship with the world. Cohabiting with idolatry, syncretistic to the core, often an advocate and preacher of idolatry. But we shall discover, friends, and are discovering that God does not cohabit. He's not in an open relationship. His covenant is binding. Let's note what St. Paul says in Romans 11 for our admonition. Paul says, concerning his judgment against, uh, God's judgment against the nation of Israel for idolatry and the grafting in of the Gentiles. This is what Paul says. Listen closely, brothers. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud... But fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward them who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off, Romans eleven nineteen through 22. Paul is warning the Gentile church. They're saying, well, we're Gentiles. Some of the Hebrews, the Jews, were broken off here, and we've been grafted in. Fantastic. He says, well, 
don't be proud, but fear. Because if God was prepared to break off the natural branches of the covenant, if you do not continue, he says, in faith and in the gospel, the Gentiles may also experience being cut off. God continues His work of kindness and severity in His church down through the ages. His covenant word binds us and calls us as a faithful bride to pure devotion. And what leads people in the end into idolatry is, yes, their own self-will, but they're encouraged into it in terms of false ideas, false teachings, disseminated amongst God's people. And of course, we have this to fight the internet today. So many people want an internet pastor, not a real pastor. You're not really accountable to an internet pastor, are you? I had a guy recently write to me who we were challenging about his lack of uh, regular attendance as a church member, and he says, well, I regularly attend. I I watch so-and-so on the, the internet at home. God promises, though, in Jeremiah 3, that if His people return to Him, He'll give them shepherds after His own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Not like these so-called shepherds that I debate on the radio who don't even believe that God exists. Idolatry can and does use the name of the Lord. As Jeroboam did, who took two bull calves of gold made them, established a new sanctuary. And then he said to Israel, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He used the theological language. He told the historical story. But he just introduced novelty into the covenant. What a fearful thing to invoke the name of God and our Lord Jesus Christ in idolatrous preaching and teaching and worship. Usually in Scripture, the false prophet is not an open pagan idolater, but who arises from amongst the people, and this has often been the way in the church. It's not usually the open spokesman for Baal, that is for sexual license and homosexual marriage and the abolition of the family and so on, who's the great danger to the church. It's the ostensible churchman who masks his idolatry as faithfulness. Often gifted, eloquent, full of good ideas, lots of plausible arguments, popular appeal. Lots of books churned out. They may be speaking of mission and kingdom of God and so on and everything must change and so on and so forth, but the mark of idolatrous leaders is they will introduce innovation into the covenant and create a new religion out of the existing one, progressive Christianity. And believe me when I tell you, it is everywhere in Canada today. The true impact of such a ministry is to say to God's people, let's go after other gods. It is existential, which means it's all about the now. It's about me and my choices, my blessing, my good. It's pagan, it's delusional, and there's no rest in it, only judgment. The jealousy of God burns for His people. And Paul tells us that He will cut off those who are idolatrous. 
The more idolatry there is in the life of the church, the more innovation and striving and restlessness and frustration there will usually be. It starts to characterize people. And people start to think that the answer to the church's problems has to be a new technique, a new novelty, a new secret, a new the secret message of Jesus. Some exportable technique that will solve the church's problems. And the fact is that a church in unbelief is like the idol she has made, useless and powerless. Her bell towers fall, her sanctuaries lie in ruin, her false ministers fade away. So we cannot turn God's jealousy into a myth, into an illusion, and equate it with a bygone cultural perception from which we've evolved. God's not jealous anymore. He's just loving and caring and so forth. Because as we've seen, jealousy and love are inescapably linked together. And those who would cry out for a God of love, and we hear this today in the church all the time, don't judge, God's loving. Those who would cry out for this God of love, this attribute that they wish to cling to, it turns out that their very concept of love is not the love of God at all, but a projection of fallen human sin onto the being of God. A denuded, permissive, disinterested God is powerless. He's unaffected. And what a person worships they become. And if you worship that which is false and powerless and ultimately unaffected, we become such. Our God is passionate, exclusive, inexorable, jealous. He's like a jealous husband. And it is these very qualities that make Him a God of real love. It's those qualities that means He is love. I can't think of a better way of summarizing this marvel than by citing what I think is one of C.S. Lewis's most stunning passages in any of his work. This is what he says. Listen closely. The analogy between God's love for for man and a man's love for a woman is freely used in Scripture. Israel is a false wife, but her heavenly husband cannot forget the happier days. I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thy espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness. Israel is the pauper bride, the waif whom her lover found abandoned by the wayside and clothed and adorned and made lovely, and yet she betrayed him. Adulteresses, says St. James, because we turn aside to the friendship of the world while God jealously longs for the spirit he has implanted in us. The church is the Lord's bride whom he so loves that in her no spot or wrinkle is endurable. For the truth which this analogy serves to emphasize is that love in its own nature demands the perfecting of the beloved. That the mere kindness which tolerates anything except suffering in its object is in that respect, at the opposite pole from love. When we fall in love with a woman, we do not cease to care whether she is clean or dirty, fair or foul. Do we not rather then first begin to care? 
Does any woman regard it as a sign of love in a man when he neither knows nor cares how she is looking? Love may indeed love the beloved even when her beauty is lost, but not because it is lost. Love may forgive all infirmities and love still in spite of them, but love cannot cease to will their removal. When Christianity says God loves man, it means that God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested, because really indifferent, concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You ask for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds. Persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for his dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, as, as, and exacting as love between the sexes. It is certainly a burden of glory not only beyond our deserts, but also, except in rare moments of grace, beyond our desiring. The impassable speaks as if it suffered passion. And that which contains in itself the cause of its own and all other bliss, that's God, talks as though it could be in want and yearning. Is Ephraim, my dear son, is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, do I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I abandon thee, Israel? Mine heart is turned within me. O Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. But ye would not. That's our God. A God of real love and faithfulness. And He calls us to faithfulness that we might share His endless joy and be partakers of His holiness. Now, if we want to be men, real men, this is the kind of love that we are to have for God, that Christ has modeled for us, for His church, that we are to have for our wives, that we are to have for God's church, that is self-sacrificing, totally faithful, completely committed. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.